moving I do want to talk this morning about the book of Romans any anybody out there kind of done the done Bible study in Romans or kind of gone down the book of Romans a few of you Interesting book. It's kind of a challenging book as well, too. Um, and I want to take a stab at a passage um, in Romans. Again, we're, we're doing these, these trees, this tree bit. Um, I, I think I got like three more teachings in this, and then I think we'll be ready to kind of to ramble on. Um, I want to talk this morning, and we'll, we'll be in Romans. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 11. Like I said, there's an interesting passage about branches being grafted. I want to talk about that. I want to talk probably about the most, about the, the most important tree in the Bible, which is um, the tree of Calvary that Christ dies on. So we'll talk about that. That'll be like September 6th, I think, is the next time we'll be gathered. And then we'll finish up with um, the tree of life in Revelation, which is kind of the culmination of all the trees in the Bible. So we'll do that over the next couple of weeks. We'll do a short review. We always talk about the importance of review. Um, that experience teaches us nothing. It is experience with reflection is what teaches us. Um, and so we're, we're going to kind of go down that route. Um, but I want to do something this, this morning with, here it is. Anybody ever heard of something called grafting? Who's heard of grafting? Skin grafting, right? You have something kind of terrible happen to you. What about tree grafting? Anybody hear of tree grafting? A couple? No? You got nothing? Okay. So here's the idea with tree grafting. This got all, I just trimmed this this morning, but it's all wimpy now. Um, the idea would be, uh, and this would happen a lot in kind of, in kind of agri uh, agricultural cultures, or uh, they did it a lot in the ancient Near East, where you would take a, a branch, right, from what would be, they, they would call it like, a, like an heirloom tree, like a producing tree, a fruit tree, an olive tree, a fig tree, or whatever kind of tree. And you would take this, this branch and you would actually, you would, you would just kind of like mend it or you would kind of add it to a wild, a tree in the wild. And then what would happen is that this tree then would kind of grow off and then it would, it would produce the fruit from the heirloom. Right? So what you would do, so this is from my little, like I said, it was a fresh clipping this morning and now it's all. Um, you would take this, this little branch and from what I, and by the way, this is my, the extent of this is a couple YouTube videos. So I am not like an expert grafter at all, but I'm just going to show you what they showed me. You pull everything off. So you kind of pull everything off. Um, and then all you leave is just at the very top. You just kind of want to leave just that little bit at the top, right? And then you would take um, some sort of gardening knife or whatever kind of knife, and you would you would kind of kind of I don't know if you can see that, but you kind of cut cut it at an angle, right? And then you would take your other. I know you guys are fascinated out there. What did you learn at church today? Oh, I learned how to graft branches too. So then, say this would be your um, this would be your avocado tree or whatever. Then you would kind of do the same thing here, right? And you would take these two. You, you basically marry them together. There's this special tape that you could use. Some people would even just use saran wrap. 
you, you kind of tape it around so you're going to tape these two things together, right? And, um, and then the other thing that they did that was interesting with this is they would take a, and has anybody ever done this out there? Anybody have, Mark, you've done this? So tell me what you would, what would you do? Is this kind of the right way that you would do it or have you done? Uh-huh. And then the, the last thing that I saw too is they would put a like kind of a plastic bag on top and that's supposed to help keep the moisture in and keep things. So again, the idea here is that you would take, like Mark, I think about your avocado tree, right? Mark, I don't know if you guys know this, has the world's great, well, not maybe not the world's, for sure the best avocado in the world. For sure the best avocado tree in all, all of Garden Grove. Orange County, he has a, and his avocado tree is as big as, yeah, easy. it's as big as that. Yeah. And the avocados that have come off it are as big as, they're softball size. They're magnificent, magnificent size, taste delicious. So the idea is that I would take, I have this small little avocado sapling in my backyard. I'd take a, and we're gonna try this at some point. We're gonna see how it goes. I'd take a little clipping from Mark's avocado tree. I would do what I did here. I would then, Again, tape it to my little sapling in the hopes that my avocado kind of sapling, and, and you can kind of do this with different, like you can graft, say on an orange tree, you could graft a different citrus fruit, um, but you can, you can kind of do this process in the wild. And again, you would take from an heirloom onto a kind of wild tree or a sapling tree or a tree in the wild to have that tree produce really good fruit. Did I lose anybody so far? Now, Paul uses this exact image in Romans 11, okay? He uses this exact image of grafting branches in Romans 11. I want to take a stab at it this morning. Go to Romans 11. We'll start in verse 17. By the way, um, when Hudson and Junior were kind of running wild, just... They're just ready for that kindergarten playground, but it's just, oh man, I'm, I'm sorry for you guys not being able to quite get into that. I love seeing those little boys just ready to go. That was just a little segue to give you time to get to Romans 11. So again, Paul uses this imagery in Romans 11. Um, again, we'll start at verse 17. And I'm going to go back into 11, but I want to kind of set it up here in 17, and then we'll go back a little bit. Um, Paul says this in verse 17, and we'll go down to 24. So he says, If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourselves to be superior to these other to those other branches. If you do that, if you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For God did not spare the natural branches. If God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. 
Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not per, uh, persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut, um, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, um, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, think of, again, think of an heirloom, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? That passage makes sense to everybody? Or is it just kind of a... <laughs> so one of the interesting things that Paul is doing here is he's, is he's talking about kind of some relationships in the church. One of the first things that you notice is that Paul is actually reversing the process, right? He's talking about an unnatural process. We talked early on kind of with, with this, this grafting. We said that I would want to take something from Mark's cultivated heirloom avocado tree and graft that onto my little sapling, my little kind of Home Depot special olive uh, or avocado tree, right? Paul reverses the imagery where he says, we are going to take a wild... You are kind of wild olive, um, olive tree or, or avocado. We'll just use olive and avocado. We'll just interchange those at, at will because I'm really struggling to keep, <laughs> keep on top of those. Like he says, you, you are wild, right? He reverses this kind of natural image the way that you normally do things. And he makes it, he says, you were the wild one that I'm now going to put on the cultivated, the heirloom. He, he, he uses this unnatural process as he's talking about, especially kind of down here in verse 24. He says, if you are cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So he reverses the process and he talks about, as he's talking about the inclusion into God's family, the Gentile inclusion, right? As he's talking about this, he says it's an, an unnatural process, right? And I think about that. I was just thinking about this, this as I was studying the sermon. To be grafted into the family of God, to become part of the family of God, is this unnatural process in, in where we die to ourselves, we are cut off in order that we may be part of Christ. Right? So, he's making this argument. Now, why is Paul making this argument? He's talking with three people groups in mind. Okay? The first one is called the non the non-Messianic Jews, right? These are, in this passage, he would say the natural branches um, which kind of have fallen off, right? The Jews in, in Paul's day that did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God's anointed one, that he was the chosen one. So you have this one group that Paul's kind of talking to, which is the non-Messianic Jews. And these, I would say, in this, as he's using this analogy, are the branches... Um, that have fallen, that have fallen off, right? They're kind of laying on the ground. The other group he's talking to here is the Messianic Jews. There was, in the Church of Rome, there was a group of people who were Jewish who became um, convinced that Jesus was who he said he was, right? 
he was the Messiah. He was God's anointed. He was God's chosen. So in this olive tree analogy, these are kind of the branches that remain. Right? And then the third group he's talking to here is he's talking to a group of, of folks, and, and we'll just call them um, Gentile Christians. Right? Now, the Gentile Christians, again, he's saying, you guys are these wild branches, these wild saplings, these wild twigs that have kind of come from the outside and are now grafted onto the cultivated, onto the heirloom olive tree, right? So these guys are the, um, I'm just going to put the wild ones. I like when Paul says that in, in the Bible. The wild ones, the wild branches. So in this passage, Paul's dealing with all three of these people, right? And this is a big problem in the early church. How do I get, you know, how do I speak to the, Messian- the non-Messianic Jews? Uh, how do I get the Messianic Jews and the Gentile Christians and, and you want to study the New Testament. Here's the New Testament in one word. Here's Paul's letters in one, probably more Paul's letters in one word, right? This is all Paul's trying to do. He's just trying to get people to get along, right? He's just, he's just trying to create unity within the church. The foundation of all the one another's. We did a whole series on the one another's a couple years ago. The foundation on all the one another's is, how do I get all these people? I just look at the church, the folks gathered here. How do we get all these people to get along with one another, to love with one another, to bear with one another, to forgive one another, to, to carry each other's burdens, to do all these things together? How do I get people who say, no, Jesus is not the Messiah? How do I get people who say, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, but you have to follow all these laws? How do I get the wild branches that are kind of coming in from pagan rituals? How do I get all of these people to get along, right? This is what Paul's trying to do in so much of his letters. In Romans, in all these different letters, he's trying to get them to, to get along. So he uses a variety of, I would I call them rhetorical devices, of, of kind of devices to try and argue, to try and convince, to try and lay out his argument, um, motivational methods to, to really hone in on this, on this unity piece, right? And the first one he uses is he's speaking to these non-Messianic Jews, right? Again, the Jewish people who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He, he does, they do not believe he's the anointed one. Is he uses a technique called, maybe you've heard this one before, envy. Interesting, Paul uses this. If you've got your Bible, go back to, I want to just read a couple verses before this. Verse 11. So 11, 11. Paul says, again I ask, did they stumble, and when he's saying they here, he's referring to non-Messianic Jews, right? The Jewish nation, which Paul was a Jew, right? He was kind of came up from the the very insiders, insiders of the Jews, right? So he's saying, did they, the non-Messianic Jews, stumble as uh, to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression... Because of the Jewish nation's transgression, because they've ignored Jesus as Messiah, salvation has now come to the Gentiles 
to make Israel, what is the words to be there? Envious. Envious, right? But their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles. How much greater will, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? And then he says this in 13, he says, I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people, right? The non-Messianic Jews. He wants to arouse. He wants to excite. He wants to motivate. I want to arouse them um, to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. So what Paul's doing here in this first passage, again, is he's trying to use this rhetorical device. He's trying to use this motivational method. He's trying to use envy to get his brothers and sisters, those non-Messianic Jews, right? The Jews who would still kind of be waiting for the Messiah, who still have their trust in the temple, who still have their trust in the sacrificial system. He's trying to say, I want you to look at the Gentiles and I want to use envy as a way to motivate you towards what they have. Now, let's take a, let's take a, a break here and I want to ask you guys, who has ever used envy as a means of motivation or had it used against them? Take a second, think about that, and then turn to the person kind of in proximity to you if there's someone in proximity to you. Think about if you have ever used envy as a kind of a motivational method towards you, right? Or if you've ever used it towards somebody else. In the meantime, I'm going to employ my artistic expertise to show you the means of envy when I was a small child. All right, let's hear your examples first. Anybody ever have used envy or used that as a motivational method? Yeah, with my children. Yeah, tell me about that. What do you want to know? Just give me an example of how um, it's been used or you've used it. Yeah, good. Someone else? 
have a story, Cass? You and I will be first in line to ask the Lord why that has. Mark, you can join us at the front of the line. Lord, why did you take our beautiful locks from us? <laughs> Anyone else think of an example? You know, when I was a kid, and I'm sure that there's still this happened, this is, this is the good old cinder block and plywood, right? All BMX jumps were made out of cinder block and plywood back in the day. And if you saw one of your friends hit that cinder block and plywood bike jump, and you said, dude, I want to be like that guy, right? I can, I can do that. I want to be like that guy. Um, and I just would always get like, if I, especially somebody who like, I thought I was a better rider then, you know what I mean? Um, there was another example I was thinking when we would take kids um, down into Supai. And in Supai, they have these big rock jumps into, you know, different lakes. And one of them was like 60 feet high beaver, remember? And if you'd see, you know, if you'd see somebody else do it, you're like, well, they can do it, you know what I mean? So what Paul's doing here is, is he's just kind of employing that same, that same technique, right? That God might, he's, he's using it kind of spiritually towards Israel, that God might speak to them through a scripture or a prayer. That you, or, or for us, you might have a mentor, you might have um, be inspired by a book, a hero, a pastor, a Christian brother or sister. Or you look at that person and you say, man, they got something, and I want that, right? Um, now Paul uses it as a, a motivational device, right? It isn't the motivational device um, for all time, but sometimes it works. Sometimes you can look at somebody, again, a, a brother, a sister, a pastor, a spiritual advisor, a mentor, and you say, man, that person has something about them. That God's touched them. God's using them. God's doing something in them. Um, and what Paul is doing is he's motivating his brothers and sisters, right? these non-Messianic Jews towards Christ. What he's doing here, let me just say one more thing about this. He's motivating toward them towards the riches of salvation. Um, here's, here's what would, he would have liked to see them do, right? For a first century Jew in Jesus' day, the forgiveness of sins was not something that they were interested in. They could simply go to the temple and do the sacrifices and have the forgiveness of sin. What inspired and motivated the early Christians, what inspired and motivated them was spirit empowerment. We talked a couple weeks ago about that mountain-moving faith, that mountain-moving spirit that was able, uh, that was found in Jesus Christ. The other thing that would be really motivating for them was, you know, we talk about forgiveness, would be the once and for all forgiveness, right? The, the Jews would have to go week and week, week in and week out and holiday in and holiday out and offer this sacrifice and this dove and this animal and say this prayer. And when Jesus comes, he says, no, 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 no. That whole sacrificial system is done. We're done with that. It was a culmination of the Jewish narrative. It was the promises fulfilled. It was the arrival of hope. It was the wisdom of fruit found in the spirit. So Paul's saying, look at my Gentile brothers and sisters. And I want you to be envious. I want you to think about that. Um, as a matter of fact, it's really interesting. I, one of the commentators pointed this out. They said that chapters 12 through 16, the remaining book of Romans, 
is kind of a manual for envy, right? So if you just kind of cursory look at 12 through 16, Paul in 12 through 16, he talks about being a living sacrifice, right? And then he talks, he talks about uh, unity of the body. He talks about love. He talks about humility. He literally gives us a playbook for a life in Christ that would make anyone envious. Now, one last group I want to talk about, these kind of Gentile Christians, this wild olive grafting part. The motivational method he uses here with these brothers and sisters. Does anybody want to get a picture of that just before I erase it? Okay. Did you like that, Johnny? Yeah? So with, with here, with the non-Messianic Jews, um, he uses envy. With the Gentile Christians, he's going to use something else here. He wants them to, um, he wants to use humility. Okay. He wants to use humility. And I just want to kind of end um, and talk for a second um, just about kind of that relationship between humility and pride. Obviously, there's tension here, right? There's tension here. There's tension here. There's tension all in here. Paul's trying to bring unity. He's using a motivational method of envy. He's using a motivational method of humility. Um, and he twice in these past, in these last couple verses, in, in verse 17 um, through 24, he, he keeps telling these Gentile Christians to be humble. Right? He keeps reminding them to be humble. And he says that if you want to be arrogant, if you want to be pride, if you want to be pr- proud, you are literally kind of, you're kind of cutting off the branch that you're sitting on, right? It, it is an act, it is an act, a lot of people talk about self-love, right? Pride is an act of self-hate in which you cut off your own branch thinking that you're better than the tree, right? I can do this on my own. I don't need that. I know what I'm doing here. It is an act of self-hate in which you cut off your own branch, thinking you're better than the tree. Three things come to mind with this, and we'll close with this. Um, I was just thinking a lot in kind of regards to humility, especially what Paul's talking about, especially for us in, in, in light of this. I'm just really thinking about, for you as a follower of Jesus, the importance Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is, is kind of like that strange trip that we sometimes journey into with the Bible, and, and sometimes it's hard to understand, and we give up on it, and, and obviously we like to read Jesus, and we like to read Paul's letters, and they're inspiring. Um, the Old Testament, verse 18, Paul talks about these are the roots that support us, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, He is bringing the long, winding story of Israel to the place where it was always supposed to go. And so, as we think about this, as Paul is instructing these Gentile Christians, as Paul is instructing us as Gentile Christians, it is a call and a reminder towards the importance of Old Testament. Just study, knowledge, reading, familiarity just engaging in the Old Testament. There is so much there that we need to understand. That way when we come to Jesus, we see what was happening all along. 
I've been reading these series of novels recently, just kind of some fun novels, and I've just been thinking that if you start any novel or any book in two-thirds of the way through it, you might be able to pick up some of the characters and some of the information and kind of have some of the knowledge, but you would miss kind of the base note of that storyline. And what Paul, I think, is reminding us, what I was challenged to be reminded of, is the real importance here of the roots of the importance of the Old Testament. The second thing I want to kind of talk about here, too, as Paul uses this humility towards, again, us Gentile Christians, I just want to talk about personal pride. So, Paul's been using this image of this wild kind of branch, this wild twig, again, that gets grafted on to the heirloom, right? And so what I did, I wanted to give you guys a little... Oh, Johnny. <laughs> Mark, you only get the mini one. Just in case you make it back. going to use my, my little guy here. Um, so he says, this is you, right? You have your little twig right there, right? This is you. This is your life, right? You know, we, we spend so much of our lives kind of thinking that we're these mighty trees or we try and project strength or we try and, you know, show how strong we are in the world. Paul says, you and I, um, we're twigs, right? And often throughout the scriptures, I was thinking this morning of a psalm where the psalmist says, all flesh is like, is like grass, right? It just kind of withers and fades away. I was thinking of the book of James where James says, what's your life? Your life is but a, a fog, a vapor, a mist. And I think one of the things that I, I was really struck by in this passage is just kind of how it, it really humbles us, right? It really reminds us of our lives. And again, as much as we try and say how wonderful and special and unique we are, we are simply twigs that by the grace of God have been grafted on to the tree. And we are just, I mean, it just again brings gratitude. It brings thankfulness. It brings a real sense of humility. Um, we don't then kind of go comparing ourselves thinking, wow, I'm so much better than you, and wow, look at how many more leaves I have, and look at how longer I am. Like, imagine these two little branches kind of, you know, talking trash to one another, saying, oh, look at me. No, we're little twigs that by the grace of God have been put back on to the tree together. Pride, when you think about pride, um, Pride is just one of those things, and we talk about personal pride, it's just insidious. 
we think about humility, C.S. Lewis had this, this great observation on pride and humility in his book, Mere Christianity. Any folks out there read that book, Mere Christianity? One of the just absolute, um, probably the best books about Christianity. Um, he was making an observation about a humble person. What does a humble person look like? We know what an arrogant person looks like, right? We can kind of spot and smell those people from a mile away. But how would you know if you met a humble person? And Lewis notes that if you had a meeting with a humble person, if you had lunch with a humble person, if you had coffee with a humble person, you probably would never know it. He says that they wouldn't be telling you, hey, you know, I'm this or that, or I'm just a nobody, or I'm just a sinner. They wouldn't be self-effacing. They wouldn't be timid. Um, The thing that you would remember from a meeting with a humble person, Lewis says, is how much they seem to be totally interested in you. Right? The essence of humility, and this is the great quote that Lewis has, and maybe you've heard this, the essence of humility is thinking of others more and myself less, right? So Lewis says it in his book. He says, um, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? If you had a meeting, if you had lunch with that humble person, you would remember, Lewis says, how much they seemed to be totally interested in you, right? Now, I can guarantee you that each one of us can sit here and think of, I had a lunch meeting with this person and they just droned on forever. I said, uh-huh, yeah, and that's interesting. And those were the only words that came out of my mouth. Everybody have a meeting with a person like that, right? And you had a lunch with a meeting that a person that just said, what's going on in your life? And they'd ask you follow-up questions and they wouldn't, you know, they would be honestly and genuinely interested in you. That's humility. It's subtle, yet it's powerful. And those are the kinds of people we want to be around. And again, I think that just, you know, I've just been thinking about these little twigs, these little branches. This is it, right? Brian, thank you for wishing me happy birthday. Today is the big 40. Um, and this is it. This is my life, right? This is kind of my life where, I don't know, what's the life expectancy in the United States? 78, 79, somewhere there? Like, I'm pretty much halfway home. Um, <laughs> as exciting as that is. And, and this is it, you know, and it just kind of reminds you, it humbles you. God, I place my trust in you. I place my trust in that at the end of this day, this branch just doesn't get dropped into the fire and burned and kind of tossed to the side, that it gets grafted in to the, to, to the real tree. Um, I think that's about all I want to say. I want to say one more thing as we close. Richard Foster, in his book, The Celebration of Discipline, he talks about the, anti, the, the, um, the way that you can become a more humble person. He says that the way you become a more humble person, like how do you pursue humility in your life, right? You can't just say, oh, I'm just going to go be, and here come the kids, so yeah, I better be done right now. <laughs> um, he can't just say, oh, I'm just going to go be more humble, and I'm just going to go work towards it. He says the way that you become a more humble person is that you serve those around you. And he says you serve those around you without them knowing it. It's that kind of secret, almost secret service that you do. You look for opportunities to serve those people in your life, right? Because what happens when we serve something or we do something nice for somebody, right? 
Don't we want to kind of like let them know like, hey, did you see I, I emptied the dishwasher this morning? Or hey, you know, I made this wonderful dinner. Or hey, you know, I did this. And it was so, and you kind of want to let people know like, hey, I kind of did these things, right? And Foster says the way that you work humility into your life, right, is that you begin to serve in this way without them knowing, without even taking credit for that. Because he says that it crucifies our flesh, right? The way that our flesh wants to say, hey, did you see me do this? Hey, did you see me do that? He says, you eliminate that from the equation and you just serve. And humility, this beautiful line, he says, will slip upon you unawares. It will slip upon you and you won't even be aware of it. So, I think that's, like I said, that's about all I got this morning. Um, Let me close this in some prayer. Again, Lord, I, I, I always get tempted, you know, God, and I just confess this to you, I always get tempted during prayer to give the sermon wrap-up in my prayer, and I don't want to do that. That's, that's silly. What I want to ask for again is what I asked for at the beginning, is that you have spoken to my brothers and sisters this morning, that you have impressed something upon them through this teaching, through music, through the Eucharist. You have impressed something upon them this morning that will change the direction and the course of their lives. God, that you have done that lovingly. God, that you have done that with your kindness and as the scriptures talk and your sternness. God, that you have reminded us of the life that is found in the power and the presence of Jesus Christ as my brothers and sisters here have been grafted into the tree. Thank you. Thank you for allowing us to gather this morning. Thank you for Brian sharing the songs. Thank you for the Eucharist. We praise you. Thank you for the children. Uh, Lord, a special prayer. You know, a lot of the Garden Grove folks going back to school tomorrow, and there's some uncertain times, and there's some anxiety, and there's some stress, a lot of unknown. Um, Spirit empowerment, the power of the Holy Spirit living in us and through us, in our families, in our children, in the way that we parent and help our children uh, teach uh, and learn. God, may we be um, examples to those around us of the power of the Spirit living within us because we are grafted to the tree of all life. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. I think we'll end it there. Thank you all for being here this morning. Am I missing anything? Johnny, who's calling you? I'm just checking what time it is. Oh, you're just checking what time it is. Just make sure I finish. Um, we're going to go down to the bay. We were got, I was thinking like more like a park. Like we were going to maybe kind of go do more like a park or, you know, some bike riding. It might be a little bit too on the warm side. for. I got a little mountain bike ride in yesterday morning and it was, it was, it was pretty warm. Um, and so I think we're going to go down to like um, Los Alamitos Bay. Is that what it's called? Alam- Alamitos, Alamitos Bay. 
Um, and we'll just hang out there. I think we're gonna order some pizza and splash in the water for a little bit. So yeah, nothing, nothing. The, the Rona kinda, it's not the ideal year to have your, your big birthday. So kinda, kinda do what you can. But nah, it's been nice. It's been nice so far. Thank you, girl. Actually today. Actually today. August. 40? Huh? 40, 40 today.